Hello, and welcome to DigFin Vox, Voices in Digital Finance. I'm your host, James DiBiazio. If you enjoy the program, give us a like, share, subscribe, bada bing, bada boom. My guest today is Hurston Powers, partner at 1982 Ventures, a Singapore-based VC focused on fintech. I spoke with Hurston about why he thinks now is the best time to be investing in young fintech startups in Southeast Asia. Hurston Powers, welcome to DigFinVox. Thank you very much. It's an honor to be here. So I'm excited to have this conversation. Uh, you are a next generation venture capital player in Asia, focused on fintech at 1982 Ventures. So I, I want to talk, of course, about what's going on in the world of fintech and VC. Uh, but first, why don't you just tell us a little bit about how you got 1982 off the ground? Sure. Yeah. So 1982 Ventures is a early stage seed fund primarily focused on fintech across Southeast Asia. And my partner and I, when we decided to, to launch 1982 Ventures, we saw that there was a gap in the market for investors that were ready to write that first check or institutional check uh, for a founder to, to accept. And then also there was a gap in kind of sector expertise or knowledge with regards to financial services and fintech. So we kind of checked both of those boxes. So we're kind of the right GPs for that strategy. Uh, but more importantly, in Southeast Asia, it was very clear that the next 10 years in this market will be dominated by fintech. And that's a true opportunity for early stage investing had to be focused on fintech because of um, the last the last 10 years were actually e-commerce, ride hailing, online gaming, online travel. And if you look at every other market in the world, um, uh, financial services and, and fintech were the, really the where the most valuable VC-backed companies uh, were, were standing. So um, I would say 1982 Ventures was started with a lot of luck, but more right time, right place. And uh, we happen to be the right team to go after this opportunity. Before you just get into that narrative, uh, just a quick background about you and your partner. Yeah, sure. So um, I'm originally from Texas. Uh, I moved to New York uh, to study where I um, was able to then go into macroeconomic uh, research. And then I moved into banking. Uh, I was with uh, Bank of New York Mellon uh, for many years. And primarily my focus was helping international companies list on the New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ. And um, at the time of, um, uh, in my days, most of those new IPOs were actually coming from China, a lot of the tech companies. So um, they relocated me to Hong Kong, uh, where I built an advisory business covering the, the China market uh, very extensively, but also the entire region of Asia Pacific. Um, the, the China story uh, was very well developed. It became almost a machine. Uh, we were listing companies uh, uh, almost at will uh, for, for a good period of time. And then we saw the same new internet or new economy companies uh, being developed in India. So I went to India to also um, uh, focus on helping those companies uh, prepare for IPOs and get ready for potential U.S. listings. Um, but what happened was actually there were more green lights in Southeast Asia. Uh, we saw kind of a clearer path for some of the large tech companies. Um, uh, at the time, it would have been Tokopedia, the Gojek, and now together um, to actually uh, do those listings. So they sent me here uh, to, to Singapore, and I relocated about eight years ago to launch that business um, and uh, saw some success and actually got some deals done, which was uh, amazing to be a part of. But uh, in the process, 
uh, especially working in India and Southeast Asia, I started getting closer to the VCs and um, many of them had not been through the IPO process or preparing their portfolio companies for that. Where in China, everybody could do this on the weekend, right? But so I, I kind of started to get uh, more ingrained in that network and really fell in love with that side of the table and what they were doing, um, but had not really made the decision that that's what I wanted to do. Um, so the next step for me was actually uh, moving to a PE fund or uh, an investments company focused on mid-market uh, fintech companies in Southeast Asia. And um, on paper, it was it was fantastic, but we just ran into a wall where we couldn't find big enough fintech companies that were ready to be taken over or um, where we could actually get a majority or significant uh, stakes. So our, my partner and I, we were working at the same firm at the time, just said, this strategy is, uh, is great for Southeast Asia, but probably in 10 years. And right now, the, the opportunities in early stage. So we were able to um, kind of test that strategy, get a few deals done, make a name for ourselves. And that kind of was what uh, allowed us to launch 1982. Okay, great. Thanks for that. So let's talk about the thesis. You guys have a thesis that there's this growth story here around fintech in Southeast Asia and that now's the time to jump in. Um, what is behind that? So for the past 10 years, you know, you're talking about ride hailing or, or, uh, Tokopedia, e-commerce, uh, but these companies have already built in their own fintech capabilities, which is not what you had in the U.S., right? So, you know, you've got uh, GoPay as part of uh, GoJack, um, et cetera, you know, uh, even, uh, you know, Carousel, uh, Lazada, they all have some sort of payments infrastructure. So what, what, what room does this leave? I mean, yes, we've seen the rise of many interesting payment fintechs from the region, uh, some of them are domestic, many of them are cross-border from remittances all the way to, to wholesale. But but what is the, you know, it, it feels to me like there's been a lot already in payments fintech in this space, both from fintechs and from the big platforms. So where where do you see that? What's the lever for growth? Is it just the, just the rise of digital consumerism in the region or is there something more to it? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question because I think that's what the common misconception about fintech in Southeast Asia is, is that we're, we've already accomplished um, fintech. We've already hit the milestones because we can uh, use an e-wallet um, and um, some of these great tech companies are already offering this. But if you kind of dig a little bit deeper, what we find is that none of these companies are actually leading in any of their segments, uh, to be honest. And what we've also found is that they've struggled to create fintechs within those existing businesses, whether it's a digital bank, a buy now, pay later solution. So what we've always said is that to do fintech, you need to be extremely focused and it probably needs to start as a fintech because growing and scaling an e-commerce business is a lot different than um, starting in a regulated space like financial services and fintech. And that, that mindset doesn't... That mindset change doesn't happen overnight at some of these large tech companies. So um, while these are amazing companies uh, and have produced some great entrepreneurs that are now launching fintechs, what we find is just like the banks, uh, these um, or traditional incumbents, they have trouble really launching uh, digital financial services or fintechs uh, from scratch inside their own ecosystem. So what that leaves is a massive wide open space for the right founders with the right team to either work with a lot of these companies, 
in many cases getting acquired by these companies, but actually to become the category leader in their space, whether it's um, on the lending side to consumers, to SMEs, or even just um, providing um, customers better experiences. And that's what FinTech really has the um, opportunity to do. So we hear a lot of talk about, you know, the bridging the financial inclusion gap, but we see also a massive opportunity in just um, enhancing the customer experiences for the millions of, of people in Southeast Asia or for the businesses. And we haven't really seen that with the, the large incumbents on the tech side or the financial side. You mentioned, you made a point there, uh, Hurston, about uh, launching something that's native to financial services, i.e. native to all the compliance and regulation that comes with finance. A lot of fintech, a lot of tech has been really a regulatory arbitrage uh, often more than some creative actual innovation on the technology side, right? So uh, would you agree with that statement that, you know, what we've seen to date has been a lot of regulatory arbitrage? And if you're looking to build the next models, um, are they going to have any more success if they end up being regulated with all the costs and, and, uh, and you know, headaches that that requires? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So at least at 1982, we take the view that regulate, regulation is actually a positive for, for FinTech. And we run away, or there's a big red flag when a founder tells us they can get around regulation or they don't need to think about it. That's a huge red flag for us because it's not sustainable uh, when you're trying to build a massive business. So in the short term, you may be able to do that, um, but it's not something that we, we like to, to, um, to back. We want founders that are engaging with the regulators. And I would say that Southeast Asia um, is in a fortunate position because many of the regulators, whether it's in Indonesia or Singapore, and increasingly even in Vietnam, you're seeing very progressive stances about the adoption of digital financial um, services. So um, we don't believe that um, a regulatory arbitrage is going to be a sustainable, long-standing competitive edge to launch a business. You need to be engaging with the regulators, helping them understand what you're trying to do. And at the at the end of the day, just make sure that customers and consumers are protected. And I, I believe our portfolio uh, demonstrates that. So um, I guess on the short answer is that I agree and disagree with that statement. For mm -hmm. us, we want to back people that are working with the regulators. What's the cost element of that? So how do you manage the cost with your portfolio companies? Because that's that's a heavy burden from day one for um, for a slim company. Yeah, and that's the beauty of being a software company uh, or being a tech company is that you don't have legacy overhead that a lot of the uh, financial institutions um, have to deal with and, and have to maintain uh, in many cases. So if you could kind of start from scratch and build something with those, um, I guess, uh, uh, considerations in mind, you would probably draw something a lot different than what um, the largest insurance company looks like or the largest uh, bank or the largest security brokerage. So you're able to um, make better margins just through your uh, the, the structure of your business. So yeah, there's there's always going to be costs to, to compliance and legal and admin, um, but those are good things for your business as, as long as you built the business that's true tech, it's true software that scales. But if you're just replicating what the banks do, then yeah, you're not going you're not right. going to survive. What's um, what are the kinds of founders that you're looking for? Let's call it fintech 2.0 if you want, uh, or next gen fintech in Asia. 
Um, what are these founders going to be like uh, in terms of their backgrounds, their experiences, and uh, I guess their personal characteristics that might be different from what we would have sought in a founder 10 years ago? That's very interesting. So um, it, at least for Southeast Asia, uh, the, the conditions for an investor like myself, um, even despite the, the, the challenging fundraising market uh, for, many, for many founders, have never been better. So over the last 10 years, we've seen um, a cohort of talent that has been inside Grab or inside Gojek and Tokopedia have seen actually how a business scales that when it's time for them to launch their dream or their business, um, they're just much better equipped where 10 years ago, a lot of the founders in, in, in this region were just learning by doing and having to with not a lot of mentorship uh, in many cases. So, I mean, you have to give such a, uh, a hat tip to, to, to many of the, the men and women that came 10 years before, but now we've got a cohort of talent that's grown up in this um, uh, massive digital transformation that's happened in Southeast Asia. Uh, and when they step out are just much better equipped from um, a knowledge standpoint, mm -hmm. technical capability standpoint, there's much more technical talent that's available homegrown in places like Indonesia and obviously uh, in, in Vietnam and the Philippines. Um, so they're just much, much better equipped and the amount of resources that they have at their disposal um, has grown exponentially. So now there are many more local independent VC funds. They're the corporate VC funds that are now working much better with the ecosystem. And you have foreign investors coming to Southeast Asia realizing that Actually, this is the most attractive market in the world, and it's all green lights here. So we have even more capital coming uh, to to fund some of these these new founders. What their profiles look like uh, is is never the same, and we try not to pat pattern match around that. Um, sometimes it might be a seasoned entrepreneur that's built businesses in Europe, who's relocated to to Singapore or Southeast Asia, sees an opportunity and launches a business. It could be um, the fresh graduate from Bandung University, you know, the MIT of Indonesia coming out and launching their dreams, or it's someone who's come from uh, a larger technology or even a financial services institution realizing that. So what we try to find are just people with um, either extreme, extreme um, uh, domain expertise, expertise or have just dug really, really deep into a specific area and solving a, a very specific problem. And obviously the baseline of having grit and being able to uh, grow a business is, is what we're looking for. What kind of fintech uh, industries or or activities do you see as having the most likelihood of success or growth? Um, you know, traditionally we would look at oh, it's a a payments fintech or it's a lending tech business, or, you know, some sort of matching platform, um, or it's uh, insure tech or you know, etc. We go to you know. So, uh, are you thinking along those lines, those sort of category lines as well, and and have a few areas where you want to place your bets, or uh, are you more just interested in finding the right founders, uh, and and you're less concerned about what the specific model is? Very good question. So, we the founders are paramount in, in our decision, uh, but generally we don't like to take quote unquote founder bets uh, where there's not really an idea. Or, or a business model. We like uh, to basically learn from the market and hopefully they are able to transfer some of their earned insights into a specific uh, space or um, have seen something. So um, you, can't, you can't take that away. But 
what we see from an I guess uh, an opportunity standpoint is that the the baseline or the foundation has been set, and every day that that foundation is getting stronger. So we have more people transacting uh, digitally online. We have real time payments coming online in in Indonesia. All of these um, developments are going to allow the next generation of founders to build better and more sophisticated uh, fintech business models on top of that. So we actually see a huge opportunity in B2B payments and B2B payments platforms. So as, as much as we believe that um, the, the payments question has been has been solved, it, it really hasn't. I mean, there even whether you're a multinational down to a an SME in these markets, reconciling uh, your payments, invoices, even just um, collecting the cash is so difficult still today, despite all of the, the strides that we've made. So we see a lot of um, opportunity in building these B2B payment operation stacks. I'd also say that embedding finance, embedding lending into other services, and even vertically into different industries, whether that's um, wholesalers, uh, FMCG, logistics, there's opportunities to go very deep in some of these massive traditional businesses with a vertical SaaS play that's embedding fintech and payments and lending into those value chains. So we're, we're definitely looking at that. I'd say something that's super topical um, is the, which is a lot different from most, for most of the world is the rise and explosion of social commerce in these countries. Obviously there's a lot of headlines around that, but the growth is just undeniable. You know, like key opinion leaders, see, social, um, th that sort of thing. Sorry? Live streamers. So you mean like so yeah. on social media, live streamers or uh, key opinion leaders, these sorts of folks. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or just um, maybe it's it's a, it's a mother that's selling on Instagram on the side, right? Uh, right. These, these kinds of things. Right. People, um, people just being savvy with their social media accounts to, to get attention or find ways to connect with customers. But actually selling items, right? So not not just selling ideas, but you know selling um, uh, goods to to many social media users. But there's no real fintech infrastructure around that. So we invested in a company called OrderFaz that is doing just that, helping the millions of social sellers in Indonesia transact better, more efficiently, handle the logistics and the fulfillment, and actually help them increase revenue. So if you if you really understand what financial services can do for traditional markets and growing markets, the opportunity, it's, it's a wide open space. And another thing I'd like to mention is that um, we are finally seeing the emergence of B2B enterprise SaaS FinTech platforms being built from Southeast Asia, specifically Singapore for the world. Mm -hmm. And the companies in our portfolio that have decided to go global from day one um, are some of our best performing companies with clients in the US, clients in Japan, Europe, Australia, all being built from, from Southeast Asia, all being built from Singapore with maybe distributed teams. And what that does, it unlocks the uh, opportunity size for that particular company where Singapore is a pretty small market to sell B2B SaaS. But if you're already signing clients in Japan and Europe, um, you've got a massive, massive opportunity. So we're doubling down on, on that thesis. Yeah, that's sort of the Israeli model, which was again uh, from the from the '90s, building for debt day one customer. In the Israeli case, obviously the main customer is the U.S. because of the size of the U.S. and they had close ties. A lot of Israelis live in the U.S. Whereas here, it's taken Singapore a long time to uh, to get to that state. Um, but uh, it's it's amazing to see. Uh, but 
there's also some risks involved. Of course, there's always risk when you are uh, investing in startups. So you mentioned um, social media unlocking those sellers. But then what happens, like uh, just this week, um, the Indonesian government announced that it's banning uh, sales on uh, social media channels. I, mean, I think they're looking at TikTok, but they made it a, a blanket, not just for one company. Um, so when things like that happen, uh, that can be very disruptive to uh, a narrow focused fintech. So how do you kind of, obviously you're in a business of bets and it's a power law bet. I assume you're not assuming every company is going to be a hit, but you want them to work. So how do you help them when they've got suddenly a, a surprise like that, which is kind of beyond their control? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and that's why it's so critical for fintech founders to be um, in step with uh, the regulatory environment uh, so that none of this is a surprise to them uh, and, and being closed. So my background in financial services, I've been dealing with uh, the regulators in Asia for the past 15 years. Um, so having that um, access and ability to, to pick up the phone to understand what's the right side uh, of of, of operating or also where we should be pointing towards in the next six to 12 months is invaluable for a founder, especially a young founder that may not have um, that access. Uh, that's where 1982 plays a, a key um, role in their in their development. So but, but in, this, in this case, though, what, what do you do? I mean, here you've got you, you described me a company that is meant to help people sell on social media in Indonesia. Now they can't. So what, what do you do? Can you Actually, help them a bit, or I mean, or do they have other businesses they could diversify into, or is there still no, here? Yeah, yeah, I, I hear you. This is actually um, a tailwind for for that particular company, so they'll be able to support even more uh, social selling uh, through their app. And th this company has grown incredibly fast uh, since since we funded it. It's actually already cash flow positive, uh, generating uh, six digit revenue, it's a monthly revenue in 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 six months. Uh, which is remarkable in this environment. And while this uh, policy change is really going to impact one particular player, uh, actually it's going to really spur even further growth for, for the company that we've invested in. Okay, cool. So let's talk a little bit about the fundraising environment. Um, you're there to support these companies, but many of them must be finding it very difficult. We're in a new interest rate environment. Um, and then you also have to fundraise because you need to go to your LPs and convince them that uh, you're a, a good bet at a time when they can just park their money in uh, in money markets and earn a cool 5%. And it's not just that LPs can say, well, I can still get maybe 8% from my VC portfolio, which is, let's face it, actually pretty ambitious. Uh, it's the risk premium has also changed. So they want even more to take that risk. Uh, it's not just sort of, uh, you know, a delta one kind of of shift in, in risk taking. So, um, what are the conversations you're having? Are you finding different types of LPs, new types of LPs that are looking to come into this space? How are you just sort of navigating your own fundraising on that side? Oh, great question. So, um, we actually are just preparing to launch our, our second fund, um, and we have about twenty uh, to twenty five percent already committed uh, to this fund and. I would I would agree that the environment is very challenging uh, in the sense that um, people are just taking a lot longer to to make decisions. Um, but at least for our strategy is uh, differentiated enough that we're actually seeing a lot of traction. And because our first fund is performing um, relatively well, uh, we're just under two x um, in, in our thirty investments. We're over fifty percent IRR uh, for fund one. Um, that's giving a lot of people a lot of confidence that 
our strategy is the right strategy and, and it's um, we're getting a lot of traction on the fundraising side, but it's tough. <laughs> fundraising is, 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 is always a challenge. And now there's many, many different options of where uh, you need to allocate. So I'd say the more experienced allocators know that they have to put something in VC and are generally pretty consistent. Um, maybe they, they um, uh, uh, take less VC investments, but they're still investing in the asset class because they, they know they need to be there. And most of those allocators also realize that 2023 is probably going to be a very strong vintage based on historical precedent. So I think the more sophisticated or experienced allocators are still investing and they understand this is where um, the, the 10x funds uh, will come from is actually the, the, the being launched now. So that's a positive thing. I'd say in 2021, um, and even maybe just before that, um, pre-COVID, there was um, there was uh, exuberance in the market where everybody wanted to be a VC. Everybody could say, oh, I'm, I'm raising a fund and could probably get halfway there. You see a lot less of that. So there's a lot less um, tourist VCs out there. People are a bit more serious. And even the folks that maybe had invested in a fund or two, or even just invested in angel investments, kind of realize that this is a full-time job. It's not something you can do on the side. So I think people that want this exposure to, to this asset class uh, will be there. But things are taking a lot longer, for sure. Yeah. What do you see as the valuation picture looking like right now? Yeah. For us, pretty unchanged, I'd say, uh, because we generally are setting the price because we're the first check. Uh, that the the founder accepts. Um, so we haven't been impacted too much um, on that front. But then the knock-on effects for the Series A and the Series B for our portfolio companies, uh, definitely multiples uh, have, have gone down. Uh, I'd say in the last six months, we started to see more deal activity um, where some of our um, portfolio companies uh, started receiving those term sheets and their Series A or Series B are actually closing, um, you know, right now. So the the market is changing in a in a positive sense. It's improving, uh, I'd say. Uh, I think it's going to take time for the growth stage uh, to to get there. But at least um, at seed stage, deals are still closing. Uh, series A has seemed to come back. People are putting term sheets down. People are getting serious uh, with with their due diligence. So um, uh, ideally, we continue to see this trend uh, happening. How long? This kind of um, slowdown or protracted, um, challenging environment last. I'm not sure, uh, but at least we're seeing some very positive signs. At least within our own portfolio, with um, you know, downstream rounds uh, getting closed. And what's the for your first fund? Um, I don't know how many years you got left, but it's still a pretty recent fund. You still must have some some way to go there. But uh, are you at at the point where you're talking with your founders about exit? Well, it's funny because we we get offered um, from other investors uh, to for liquidity. They want uh, our position in some of these companies, um, even as, as early as Series A, um, downstream investors or strategics are uh, mm -hmm. approaching us to get access to these companies. For us, we see uh, a lot of room to run <laughs> in these companies where we're looking for outsized returns. So um, that, that hasn't been a topic of discussion uh, yet. We do constantly monitor our portfolio for liquidity opportunities um, and at the right time, then we are able to either take um, take some money off the table through secondary sales. Um, I'd say in this environment, we're starting to see a lot more inbound M&A um, uh, inquiries from primarily Japan, India, and the US that want to get a foothold in a market like 
uh, Indonesia, we're starting to see a lot more um, of that coming either through us or to our to our founders. So it's discussions that we have. Uh, we try to work with the founders to to um, maximize their uh, outcome and maximize what they want to do uh, with their with their business. Um, but yeah, still still early days. But the opportunity for liquidity for us um, has never not been an issue. We're just we're we're aiming to be a 10x fund, so uh, we got a long way to run. Okay, just a little crystal ball. It obviously you are um, as a seed investor, you're not probably going to be the one who's going to be taking these guys to IPO if that's the way they go or do a giant strategic sale. I mean, you might still have some skin in the game, but they'll probably have some, you know, Series B, Series C investors if that will come in and probably would would have outsized portion, but. But nonetheless, where do you just expect some of these IPOs if they choose to go IPO at all? Where do you where do you see that happening? Is it, are they going to are they thinking Nasdaq when you talk to them, or are they thinking no maybe the you know the Indonesia stock exchange or you know they want to listen at home um, or maybe they're in Indonesia or Vietnam but Singapore might start to look attractive to them. Um, just where where do you see that dynamic headed for for startup companies? Yeah. Um... You know, I love this topic because of my history. So <laughs> you, you might have asked this on purpose, but um, it really depends on the on where the company is focused and which market and, and where they're based. So what I believe is another misconception or maybe it's, it's not uh, been fully realized is that the fact that the Indonesian Stock Exchange um, has successfully listed at least three very large tech IPOs um, over the last two years has basically taken the ceiling off um, some of the opportunity uh, that we've that we've seen. So the potential upside for us uh, has increased because of that fact. And where in those models, e-commerce is a kind of a winner-take-all type of scenario um, in fintech and financial services. Many people can win and many people can uh, can play. So I think the fact that the IDX has shown that it can accept massive tech listings is going to hopefully start a super cycle in this in this ecosystem where there's going to be more capital returned to investors, more founders that step out, or more talented individuals that step out of these companies once they've they've uh, been able to to exit and start new companies. But we're just going to see. Um, an upward growth in the, the capital markets for tech companies, specifically in, in Indonesia today. So we're, we're very um, bullish on the progress of the cap equity capital markets there. And we see that for our portfolio in particular, that if an M&A or trade sale doesn't happen, um, that they have a path to listing. And we know that the next companies on the docket for the IDX um, happen to be in the fintech space. That's Indonesia. I think for some of the companies that are more global focused, um, New York will still be attractive. Um, and we we also, we we hope that Singapore becomes even more attractive uh, for, for some of these companies. But from our perspective, it doesn't really change the game. Uh, the idea is you're, you're looking for the deepest liquidity, the most um, market awareness, uh, and institutional knowledge um, for your your industry, so that you can get that coverage, you can get that get that liquidity, and obviously where you can get the the the, the best valuation that can be sustained as well. And I think every every founder will have to look at, at what's available. But um, I, I still believe that Indonesia um, is on an upward trajectory and will develop their capital markets. Great. I think that's a great way to end our conversation today. Um, terrific high note. 
Hurston, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you very much for this opportunity, James.